I'd invite you to stand for the reading of our sermon text for today. Isaiah 40, 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. It certainly is good to be together on this weekend. Uh, as we've already said, there is certainly a lot going on, um, but a lot of good things. Uh, thanks to Heather and Jason for leading us so well, and thanks for that nice waiter uh, bringing all his, bringing his students. Our sermon series for Advent is called Fear Not. It's striking how frequently these words occur in all of Scripture, but in particular in those stories that have to do with the coming of Jesus, the Advent and Christmas stories in the Gospels especially. Right? The, world, the world is full of things to be afraid of and that people are afraid of, uh, for instance, one very common one is, is speaking in public, right? Some of you might be afraid of that. Uh, another common thing that people are afraid of is heights. So, so far, so good. Uh, just don't ask me to sing in front of you or to play sports, because that might terrify me. We know these kind of fears, or we might call them phobias, right? Because many of these sorts of things don't make a lot of rational sense. I'm standing quite high up here, but unless I do something ridiculous, there's actually no way I'm going to fall and hurt myself. I've got a sturdy railing here in front of me. Um, and you know other fears, right? You might know somebody who's, who's a great big strong guy, like a pro football player, who for a living, has other large men crash into him 
as hard as they possibly can, and yet he's terrified of, of needles or something, right? And we all know it is not rational. The, the, the pain of another man that weighs in excess of 250 or 300 pounds plowing into you at full strength is a lot more pain than the tiny little pinching sensation of getting a blood sample, and yet some people are just terrified of that, even though they might be strong and tough in other ways. But that's how our fears work. We have other kinds of fears, though. Uh, some of those make a little bit more sense. Sometimes those affect us a little more deeply and a little more completely and continually as well. Our mass media and, and social media culture certainly doesn't help us that much. I'm sure I'm not alone when I sometimes wonder whether news outlets are in the business of giving us information or selling us fear. Things to be afraid of, right? Natural disasters, wars, riots, child molesters, terrorists, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, Russia, China, Iran. We didn't start the fire. S someone got it, thank you. Then add on top of that, whatever Dr. Google is up to this week, this causes cancer, this other thing causes birth defects, antibiotic resistant superbugs are on the rise. And then we look at how things are going in our faith, right? Deeper, deeper, deeper levels of things that might make us fearful. Church attendance is shrinking. More and more young people are leaving the faith. Are we doomed? I think that's what's at the bottom of most of our serious and deep fears. We're afraid of what we know and what we cherish and what we love coming to an end. At the end of the day, our deepest fears, the things that trouble us most, are sort of an extension of our ultimate fear, that is, fear of death. Let's talk a little bit about prophetic speeches, which we just heard read so well for us. We begin with sort of a, a big picture view of God's purposes in the world in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, it marks kind of a turning point in that book in both uh, time and tone and, and time frame, if you will. Many scholars point to the, the transition between chapters 39 and chapter 40 as being uh, so notable that they refer to second Isaiah, which some believe was written by a later author. Now, I don't think that's absolutely necessary. It, it, in fact, Anyhow, it's hard to deny, though, that chapter 40 deals with, with later events. The first 39 chapters, we hear over and over again that the punishment and the judgment of God is coming because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And it, it's off there, looming on the horizon, and it gets to a point there's, there's no avoiding this anymore. And then we get to chapter 40, and it seems like it's saying, hey, it's all over, it's done with, uh, that punishment is completed. We hear an announcement that it's coming to an end. At the end of the day, though, as, as we're going to see, time perspectives in the prophetic books don't always work exactly as we might wish they did. Some of you might know I do a little photography in my spare time. And one of the things you learn about, kind of in the basic stages of using a camera, is something called depth of field. And it has to do with how much of your photograph is in sharp focus from foreground to background. 
And there's different techniques you can do to manipulate that somewhat. So for instance, if you're taking a portrait, typically what you want to do is you want to have your subject's face in a nice, clear, sharp focus. And you want everything behind them off in the background to be blurry so it doesn't distract from the person's face. So you want to isolate them and separate them from the background so that they, they stand out clearly. That's a little bit oversimplistic, but it's kind of how it works. I, I would show you a picture and explain this more fully, but some guy painted a giant mural and put it up there where we'd like to project our visuals. Prophets, though, do a similar thing with time, and we have to pay attention to that. We might kind of wish that prophets shot portraits, so to speak, so that when they talked about something, that thing alone was in sharp focus compared with everything else, and you could kind of figure out easily where it was in time. But prophets don't. They shoot big sweeping landscapes where everything is in sharp focus. And it can be hard to tell, okay, when does this happen in time relative to the things that are going to happen after it? And they'll talk about, for instance, the day of the Lord, or they'll say, in that day, and they'll say a whole bunch of stuff. And it will sound as though this is all going to happen at one point in time. But in reality, sometimes the things they talk about happen over quite a, a long period of time, even though they describe it all as in that day. And we'll see that a little more as we explore this text. So just keep that in, in the back of your mind. There's an old saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. In some ways, that might seem terribly depressing. In other ways, however, it reassures us that finding ourselves as God's people in a difficult place in a place of fears, isn't a new thing. We've been here before. God's people were there when Isaiah uttered these words thousands of years ago. God's people have always lived in this seemingly, at least, fragile space where it so frequently looks like the whole thing was just this hair's breadth from falling apart, going off the rails, crashing down. Israel wandering around in the desert. Israel oppressed by foreign enemies. Israel led astray by their wicked kings and their own sinfulness. Israel sent into exile. Israel being ruled over by foreign oppressors in the time of Jesus. God's people find themselves in a place so frequently where they are afraid that his purposes for them and even his care and even his presence with them have failed. Or at least look like they are in about this close from that happening. If you want to, you can flip back to Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, you don't have to because I'm going to read it in just a moment. But there at the beginning of this great book, one of the greatest of the prophets, we read about this ultimate future that God promised to his people. This is the promise it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
This is the glorious future that God promised to his people. And yet, chapter by chapter, as the, the prophecy of Isaiah has unfolded, it's been one after the next of Israel's failure, Israel's sin, judgment, and exile looming. We've seen anything but the establishing of this city of God and the people of God that this passage promised. And yet, in the midst of all that, and, and entering in to all of that, comes this voice that declares a different reality. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This, this double reality of, of my people and your God is the foundation of everything to do with Israel's covenant with the Lord. Now I know we do have some guests here with us today, but over the last months, our congregation has been following the story of Abraham. And if we just think back a few weeks to Genesis chapter 17, we see the very beginning of this theme of, of you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Back there, God promised Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And then of course it becomes even more explicit in the book of Exodus in chapter 6 and following throughout that whole book where the Lord promises, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This great promise, my people, your God, is one of these central threads that runs throughout the, the whole of the Old Testament and all of Scripture. This promise is the central reassurance and comfort to God's people no matter what they face. No matter what happens, no matter how they fail, no matter what circumstances go against them, God will not go back on this promise to his people to be their God. One of the biggest influences on our fears, at least the deep and and foundational ones, the ones that keep us up at night, the ones that prevent us doing the things that we probably know we ought to be doing. It's the voices that we listen to. And by listen to, I mean pay attention to, give heed to. Here in this passage, an unnamed voice is introduced that has this message of future hope for God's people. And what does this voice say? How does it speak against fear? How does it bring comfort? It's important to note, first of all, that the comfort that it announces and the comfort that it, in fact, accomplishes is not just the comfort of an emotional state or positive mental well-being. This comfort has to do with something that God is going to do by entering into human space and human time. Get ready, the voice says. Make way, straighten the curves, flatten the hills. The Lord himself is going to show up. His glory is about to be revealed. Lift up your eyes beyond the wreck and ruin of all that you see around at this moment because the Lord is about to do something unheard of. Just in case we missed it, this section concludes with an important refrain that occurs throughout the the work of Isaiah. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a voice worth listening to. So what voice are we going to listen to? What 
What voice is going to bring comfort and bring hope rather than fear? The mouth of the Lord speaking. Then the voice speaks again. All flesh is like grass and like the flower of the field. I remember when I was a little kid, I grew up on a farm. Uh, we had a native prairie grassland pasture near our home. And when I was a little boy, I would go out in the springtime with my grandmother uh, looking for prairie crocuses. You know, the first, they're beautiful, these little flowers. And it's amazing, the snow will hardly be melted. And there'll be these beautiful little delicate lavender colored flowers growing. Well, they only grow about so high, you know. Um, the outside of their petals and leaves covered in that soft kind of downy fuzz. Beautiful little things. And the first signs of spring, right? They're beautiful, but you know what you can't do with prairie crocuses? You can't take them home. By the time you get them back to your house, they'll be wilted. They do not survive as a cut flower at all. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of what this text is talking about, right? These things are beautiful, but they don't last. Can't take them home. They'll wither almost immediately, even if you get them in water right away. They're beautiful, but they're soon gone. That can be a hard message to hear, but it's only one side of the coin, right? If you're on top of your game, you're doing well, things are going for you, things are humming along nicely, hearing that everything eventually winds down and falls apart and withers and is done away with, oh, that sounds depressing. What if you're on the other side of that coin? What if you're feeling down and out, suffering, facing oppression, mistreatment? These are actually hopeful words then. These are words that remind us that the great powers in this world that stand against God and against his purposes and against his people, they don't get the last word. They wither like the flowers of the field and they soon pass away. While they might do great evil, the evil that they can actually accomplish is limited because they're not permanent and they don't get the last word. They can say what they want, they can say it as loud as they want and as often as they want, but they will not get the last word. This passage assures us, in fact, as is written on the wall of this very building, and as this community has proclaimed for so many decades, God gets the last word because his word stands forever. And that word proclaims a message of hope, a message of good news, of gospel. What is the content of that message? Well, a good portion of it is just this, just what we've been proclaiming every year at this time for 20 centuries now. God with us. But here's where that whole thing I mentioned about prophetic focus in terms of time can get a little bit confusing. Right? Isaiah in this passage, he proclaims, Behold your God! Behold, he comes with might! For him and from where he stood, it would seem that God's coming was all this one piece. God is going to come in might, come in power. Of course, we know that the story turned out a bit differently than that. God came, and yet it was not the red carpet treatment you might expect from this passage. God came, and there was as we say every year in our Christmas pageants, as we read the Christmas story, there was no room for him in the inn. 
God came, and while all the hosts of heaven proclaimed glory to God in the highest, the only people on earth that seemed to notice were some lowly shepherds from the nearby hillsides and some pagan astrologers from faraway lands. As it turned out, he came, and yet that coming in power and ruling in majesty would have to wait until a later time. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us actually in a pretty similar place as God's ancient people, Israel. Again, what's their fear? And if we're honest, our fear? I think it's this. If we look with any honesty at the world around us, how things are going, we might fear that God's good plan may have foundered somewhere and that it's going to fail. In light of that fear, it leaves us hoping and longing for the day when God will intervene in this world to deal finally with the sin within and the oppression without. We're still longing. As, as Pastor Heather said, that's what this season of Advent is all about. We look back to Jesus' first coming as, as the baby in Bethlehem in the manger. But like God's ancient people, we're still waiting. We're still looking ahead to what he's going to do ultimately and finally and completely when he does come in that power and might and rule with his recompense with him as we, as we heard in Isaiah chapter 40. We're still longing. Here's the thing. I believe there's two kinds of longing. There's fearful longing and there's hopeful longing. Fearful longing focuses on what's wrong right now. Focuses on what's broken in our current circumstances. And it's important to be honest about what's broken, what's wrong, what's sinful. But it does no good to stand around wringing our hands, saying, dear me. Such longing often ends up longing for some imagined golden age in the past, more than it does longing for the miraculous inbreaking deliverance that only our Lord can accomplish. Fearful longing primarily focuses on what's wrong now. Hopeful longing, on the other hand, focuses primarily on what will be right then. Hopeful longing acknowledges what is wrong and even sinful, but it keeps on looking for ways that God is at work and that his love and his truth and his kingdom are breaking in even now. And and the interesting thing here is that hopeful longing has this paradoxical effect. See, it motivates us to roll up our sleeves and get to work loving God and loving others with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, with all our mind, even as we freely acknowledge that it's not our efforts that's going to bring the thing longed for. God will do that. God must do that. I'd like to close by backing up just slightly. My explanation about Isaiah's words about God's coming versus what actually happened might have, been, might have been a little bit of an oversimplification. While it's true to say that perhaps he had in focus one thing 
even when it was in fact two or even when it was in fact quite extended in time. It might be too neat and tidy to say that it was a a first coming in weakness and, and a second coming in power. What could be more powerful than coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world? You know, it's not just that the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed at some unknown point way off in the future when he returns in power. The glory of the Lord was also revealed when he came in sacrifice. If you've been around here for any length of time, you've probably heard me say some variation on this. We can have hope and trust that God will continue to fulfill his promises in the future because he's already proven faithful in fulfilling his promises in the past. Specifically, we can trust that he will continue to take care of us in whatever we face now and in our future because in Jesus, he's already taken care of the worst problems that we ever faced, our sin and our alienation from our Heavenly Father. And if he can do that, there's nothing else in heaven or on earth that he can't accomplish. So let's allow, let's allow the looking back theme of Advent to ground us in the truth that God has already come. Behold your God. He's already come and he's already done what most needed to be done. And in the looking ahead theme of Advent, let's continue to long and to yearn and even as it's appropriate to grieve for all that's not right in our world. But let's see that longing transformed from from fearful, hand-wringing, anxious longing to hopeful, trusting longing in what our good Lord is going to do. God's coming. He's coming. So let's prepare the way. Let's start with us. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. We thank you for this reminder of your word that speaks a word of hope to us in the midst of our fears, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of wherever it is that we find ourselves. And Lord, we confess that there are all kinds of voices in this world that we might listen to and that we do in fact listen to and that we do in fact listen to even though we should not. Um, And so as your people here and now gathered in this place, we repent from that. And we turn and we commit to listening to the one voice that we should listen to, your voice, the mouth of the Lord. And you have spoken sure words of deliverance and your coming in power. 
Lord, may you grant us a firm and a sure conviction that because of what you've done for us in Jesus already, in coming, in sacrifice, that we can have confidence that you are with us now, that you will continue to be with us in the future, whatever happens. And Lord, may that sure knowledge and confidence turn the longing that we have for what you're going to do ultimately. May it turn that longing from fearful to hopeful. So in this Advent season, Lord, we we ask that your spirit would move among us. Give us that hope that we've been praying about. May we keep looking ahead, keep longing, keep yearning. And even so, may we see you at work around us in ways large and small in your gracious love for us. Come, Lord Jesus.